Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Bandwidth for the Sunday Talk is provided by TalkShoe at T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com. This is the Sunday Talk, episode 24, for March 15th, 2009. Only six days to go. The Sunday Talk is brought to you by GoToMyPC, the easiest remote access service available. Try GoToMyPC free for 30 days. Visit gotomypc.com slash techpodcasts. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Sunday Talk. Oh, I sounded like an American sportscaster there. Uh, the weekly show that looks at the week that was in the Australian news, media, politics, food, health. If it fits into one of those categories and happened in the last six or seven days, then it's entirely possible that if we think it's interesting, we might just be talking about it here on the Sunday Talk. My name's Matthew Kapelke, and we're going out live over TalkShoe.com here on the March March the 15th, 2009, a bright and sunny Sunday morning here in Queensland. Uh, my partner in crime, as it were, my uh, Clyde to my Bonnie, or my Bonnie to my Clyde, depending on which way you want to look at it, is Mr. David Hutchinson. David, good morning. Good morning, Matthew, and good morning, everyone. And that's one of the more original analogies I've heard of in quite some time. Well, yeah, I suppose we do go around causing mayhem on the internet. Not really. No. But if, but if, uh, if our reputation precedes us, got to be careful. Very true. And what a week it was. Um, when we were wrapping up last Sunday, the threat of Cyclone Hamish was bearing down on the Queensland coast. And I have to be honest, living in the destructive path of, well, the, the predicted destructive path of Cyclone Hamish, um, there was a couple of hairy days there that I thought, oh my goodness, what, am I going to be there next Sunday to be able to, to do the next episode of the Sunday talk? Yeah, it was a bit looked looked a bit promising even on the radar from here. And when I uh, saw a status update on your online services that uh, said you were uh, looking at the possibility of being evacuated, uh, I was beginning to ponder that possibility of being here this time myself. But uh, as things eventuated, the big threat turned out to be a big fizzer. Oh, but uh, yeah. I can understand why the uh, authorities need to plan for these things as if they're going to happen because more often than not they will and uh it's going to be the one time it's going to be the one time that uh, the authorities take things easy that everything's going to go completely to pot and and uh there's going to be all sorts of, crim- of recriminations and bitching and complaining going on which eventually happened anyway with that blasted oil tanker sailing into the middle of the of the whole shebang. Yeah, well, let's get to the uh, let's get to the oil tanker in a moment. But I want to just talk about Cyclone Hamish because uh, I thought 
we sort of last Sunday it was a Category Five, and there was a lot of talk about suspension of the election campaign, and uh, in the end that didn't happen. But uh, the, it, it sort of seemed to be a Category Five cyclone that was moving sort of southeast down the track tracking along the the uh, edge of the Queensland coast and uh, Monday morning, oh, Sunday night, I remember going to bed being actually quite nervous because uh, a couple of things had happened that afternoon that made me think, oh, maybe my uh, misplaced sort of complacency uh, about this wasn't entirely accurate. And that was uh, we had uh, Fraser Coast Regional Council, Council uh, Regional Council Mayor Mick Kruger uh, talking to the to, talking to the media, uh, saying, "Oh, if you're in Harvey Bay and uh, you can just get out now," and you're thinking, "Okay, that's uh, that's nice to see." Good old Mickey that you're uh, keeping a level head there, uh, which was fine in and of itself. But the problem was is that a lot of people took that to heart. And I went over Sunday afternoon to do my my weekly shopping at Woolies. And uh, let's just put it this way. There'd been a run on the shops that day. And uh, my first noticing of this was actually a couple of hours preceding that when I was – after we finished the episode and I was going into work for a couple of hours. And uh, I went past the United Petrol Station here on Old Mirabara Road. And uh, there was a massive queue and I thought, what's going on here? Why are people queuing up? I thought, maybe it's cheap petrol. No, it's not. It's like 114, 115 cents a litre. I thought, oh, maybe it's just a peak time, 11.30 on a Sunday morning. And uh, I got to work and a friend of mine was in there too and we were talking about the fact he'd been to Woolies that morning at Pialba and uh, had been talking about the fact that it was just, it was standing room only. It was just packed and people were all talking about the cyclone and people were just buying food left, right and centre. And I thought, oh, you're kidding me. This is just ridiculous. And... Um, and so then in the end, uh, we were looking at the cyclone alerts and uh, and everything, and it looked like it was tracking right towards Harvey Bay, for sort of Fraser Island area, and we were going to cop it on Tuesday. And we were thinking, oh, my goodness, just thank, thank the Lord we've just revised our lockdown and evacuation procedures at work. And uh, then that afternoon, as I said, I went over the road to um, buy my uh, 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 shopping, and... Uh, number of shelves were suspiciously empty of any sort of contents. And there seemed to be three main things that people were buying. They were buying bread, because there's not a loaf of bread to be found anywhere in Woolworths, uh, anywhere in the three stores in Harvey Bay. Uh, batteries, just not a battery to be found anywhere, apart from a couple of little rechargeable ones that people have presumably thought, oh, if the power goes out, they're no use to us anyway. And uh, the That's third... logical thing. Well... The logical thing would be to say, I'll buy it and then charge them up before the power goes out. But, hey, that's neither here nor there. When you're in a panic, you're in a panic. And then the third item that seemed to be going was uh, tin baked beans and spaghetti. Uh, there was not a, for the most part, not a tin of baked beans or spaghetti to be found anywhere in Woolworths. Yeah. Uh, those, those those were the three major things that uh, were, were being emptied out. I saw footage on the Brisbane news that night of some of these empty shelves. And yeah, apparently there was, there was, there's been panic buying at various stages all up and down the coast. Uh, even, even uh, when we were talking last week that, uh, when the cyclone was coming down through the Whit Sundays, they were, they had footage on the news of stores, of uh, store shelves in Mackay that were empty. Mm. So yeah, it, as, as the cyclone came down the coast and the warning zone was extended further and further ahead of it, yeah, people, Took note and uh, decided to uh, decided to stock up, which uh, is is makes sense in itself. But when everybody's doing it all at once, that can cause problems. Well, it did at Woolworths because I was talking to the girl on the checkout, and I said it must have been a bit mad in here, and she said, "Yeah, it was that uh, they don't when they'd open their doors at I think eight thirty nine o'clock, whenever it was. So it's about now they're opening." Uh, 
she said they just had a they've had a constant stream of people coming in it was it was just insane as soon as the doors opened people were in there and they were buying bread and water bottled water and and stuff like that and you just think my goodness uh, talk about a bit of panic buying and uh, yeah and so they uh went in and did all their purchasing and so sunday night we got all this stuff from Mick Kruger telling people oh we're going to evacuate 10,000 people and then i was dumb enough to go and look at the storm surge map on the Fraser Coast Council site and lo and behold i happened to be on the wrong side of the blue line uh which meant that uh if things had gone the way they were my place would have been one of the ones that was door knocked on the monday tuesday time frame being told um get out and I thought that's interesting because I'm going to be at work, so I'm not exactly here to to be door knocked. Um, so that was uh, all very exciting, and for a yes. while there, it looked as though uh, we were we were going to be getting a, a bit of a, a bit of a cyclone hit. But then, like all things, this turned out to be a bit of a storm in a teacup. And by about Tuesday har, morning, har, har. Well, it was literally. And uh, it, by the end of the Tuesday just had totally fizzed out and they were downgrading it left, right, and centre. And then about Wednesday, there was like a renewed thought of, oh my goodness, it might actually turn around and come back towards us, which it did, but it just kept breaking down. And, well, yeah, and by Thursday it was reduced from just to a, a, a low-pressure system back to where it was a week ago. Yeah, <laughs> almost figuratively, literally, and geographically. It actually crossed back across its own track as it was breaking up. Uh, somewhere, near, somewhere near St. Lawrence, the uh, Bureau people noticed there was one plot They'd made on uh, on Sunday evening, and the, on on Thursday they'd come back past that that exact same point. One of those one of those cute little juxtapositions that was uh, one of the last things to be written into the log about this thing, because by that by that point it was it was basically breaking down. Even the uh, it had even vanished off the radar as the cloud as the uh, rain clouds had scooped off had been scooped off it and uh, been flung across the coast. Because apparently what happened on Sunday night, when it's uh, – what the meteorologists were saying on Sunday night, when it came down past Fraser Island, the predictions was it was going to make a sharp right turn and go in go in over the uh, over Mary Bahami Bay area. But it kept going and ran into a high-pressure system, which, to, u- to use their words, decapitated it. Well, I'm pleased it did. It was, yeah, uh, so, so uh, the top, so basically the entire top half of the cell got got sheared off when it, when it ran into this high pressure system. A lot of the uh, a lot of the rain cloud was a lot of the rain cloud was scattered over the southeast coast. We got some rain here from uh, Tuesday to between Tuesday and Thursday. Another couple of little couple of little drizzle spits yesterday uh, on Friday as well. But by that uh, and uh, by that stage. Because it had because it had been sheared off, uh, it just basically that's basically what caused it to start breaking down. Yeah, oh, well, good old Cyclone Hamish. It uh, it was good for the economy for a forty eight hour period there on baked beans, batteries, and uh, and bread. But of course, that wasn't the only natural disaster type situation to affect Queensland this week, with uh, quite a quite a lot of oil being spread up and down the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, I have to correct myself. The Pacific Adventure wasn't an oil tanker; it was a container ship. Yeah, but apparently uh, the side of it got pierced, and one of the ca- containers just started leaking out the side or something. Yep, uh, according to the original reports, thirty-one containers full of ammonium nitrate fertilizer uh, were were lost overboard when the ship sailed into the remnants of Cyclone Hamish, and one of those containers, when it fell overboard, pierced the hull. Uh, and breached one of the breached one of the ship's fuel tanks, and that's where all the oils come from. Yeah. So, uh, 
And then, of course, having seen some of the pictures, I mean, it's actually absolutely disgusting. Uh, oh, yeah. What's happening. And well, then there's all true. this talk of litigation and investigations and that. Uh, but, from, I mean, from the sound of it, it doesn't sound as though the uh, the, the driver of the, uh, the vehicle in question was uh, was in any way negligent. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is, is now most of the Sunshine Coast uh, beach line is is just full of uh, full of oil. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a common refrain on the on the news since Thursday. I've, I've even been watching footage of it this morning as we've been talking. Aerial shots of the eastern half of Fraser Island and the uh, and some and some of the and some of the associated areas around Noose Marichdoor area absolutely black yeah. with the oil. There was even there's even one photo uh, that was submitted to submitted to the uh, Weather photo section on the Channel Seven News. The Maroochydore is a, it, it was a rainbow shot, but it's over the Maroochy River. Maroochy River, uh, some of this oil did wash into it, so oh. you got the rainbow over the Black River. So it, um, so they didn't manage to block off the Maroochy River before some of it got in there. Some of it did get in there. Yeah. Yes, uh, apparently, apparently, uh, from the reporting I've heard, there was some, there were some parts of it that uh, did get in there, but they and they did put the booms down eventually. Yeah, there was there was also another small there's also another small leak from the ship itself after it docked in Brisbane. So uh, the Brisbane River is also the Brisbane River is also being uh, is also being logged as part of the spill area. Yeah, it's uh, there's some pretty filthy photos of this. I think it was two hundred thousand liters of oil. Two hundred and thirty thousand. Two hundred and thirty thousand. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's have a look at the photo gallery here on the ABC site. Uh, some yeah, some pretty disgusting uh, imagery here of uh, various beaches uh, along uh, along the Sunshine Coast. Just yeah. uh, b- black. The, yeah. the thing I found amazing. The thing I found found amazing about this whole thing. And I probably would have nominated this for the uh, campaign moment if the. Uh, other thing hadn't come along. Uh, the uh, the environmental protect the environmental protection agency, the Maritime Safety Agency, mm. uh, actually actually tried to stop Maruchi Shire Council using earth moving equipment to clean up the oil spill. Their chosen method is to use shovels and rakes for a, for for a, an oil slick that's more than twenty kilometers long. You're kidding me. And is also reportedly carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. And it's also reportedly capable of eroding away protective cl- protective clothing, according to one report I read. The uh, announced rationale behind not using earth-moving equipment was to prevent further damage to the beach and the foreshore. I'm thinking with that beach in that condition over that big distance, it's a bit bit late to be worrying about damage, don't you think? Yeah, it's a little bit of the the old sort of closing the barn doors after the horse has bolted. Uh, oh yeah, and that that's sort of also analogy been a common refrain yeah. from the uh, recriminations over this coming out of the election campaign. Oh yes, of course we've had the conspiracy theory from the LNP, and I, to be honest, I don't think it's doing uh, the LNP any good to be going around coming out with some of the crap that they've been saying over the last two or three days. But it's typical of them. Oh, absolutely. Typical of any opposition. Oh, no, it's typical of Lawrence Springborg. Let me put it that way. That's when it came out, when when he started saying some of this about saying, oh, there's a cover-up and a conspiracy. And I think Anna Bly's comment in response was was quite uh, humorous. She said, it's covered 20 kilometers of the coastline. How on earth is he he expecting us to cover it up? 
Uh, and I thought, well, yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Unbelievable. He was talking about, oh, because he wants to be involved in the in the, in the um, rebuild effort. And well, that's fair enough. And she said he'll be briefed and uh, everything like that. And he said, oh, no, I want to be more involved. And you're just locking the LNP out and blah, blah, blah. You're supposed to be in caretaker mode. But we'll hang on. There's still the government until yeah. uh, another seven days at the very least. Um, they are, yes. And there was also... While, while we were talking, while we were talking last week, it was part of the uh, part of the announcement we were waiting on. That yes, the government still is yes, the government still have responsibilities to uh, govern in that in that particular in that particular way. They have to be able to deal with disasters that come up during the campaign. They can't just say, "Oh no, we're in caretaker mode and just leave it sit for another two or three weeks." That would that would put absolutely everybody offside and possibly even sway the election vote. But, yeah. but uh, part of what part of what Anna Bly was saying last week, uh, that announcement we were waiting on, she actually she actually had to produce advice from the Crown solicitor, saying that the government did have this responsibility. For disaster management, even with caretaker provisions in place. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, even though the election's on Saturday, uh, and let's let's assume the Labor Party lose, which all the polls indicating they won't. Uh, oh, not that they won't, but uh, the LNP is still ahead, fifty-one forty-nine, according to the, to the uh, latest issue. There's still mm-hmm. the, there's still the uh, more likely possibility of a hung parliament. No, fifty-one forty-nine won't be a hung parliament. Bloody close, but it won't be a hung parliament. Fifty-two. 53 might be a hung parliament, but no, not 5149. It'd have to be 51.9, let's put it that way, uh, to be even close to a hung parliament. But uh, the fact of the matter is that let's assume Anna Bly and the Labor Party lose on Saturday. They'll still be in power for another week or two after that, uh, just in much the same way that John Howard in 2007 was still Prime Minister for uh, uh, until the, the swearing-in ceremony, uh, which is usually like a week, week and a half later or something, I believe. Uh, uh, she'll still technically be Premier, but she won't have a lot of power. She'll mostly just be – it'll still be the same sort of caretaker-like provisions. So um, with all that in mind, it, w- it would have been ridiculous for Anna Bly to have tried to say, oh, no, can't, we're in caretaker mode, we have, can't do anything. Yeah, and and then because it's 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 another common refrain, even with even when even when there's not a campaign on, that uh, that uh, people are uh, annoyed with their uh, governments and administrators saying, "Oh, we can't do anything." <laughs> then when then when something like this comes along, and some of the uh, and, and and some of the local authorities actually do do something, <laughs> some of the other people try and stop them. Yeah. Which is, which is ridiculous. Anyway, we should probably look at getting into the episode. But before we do, I, I want to mention a uh, fantastic little piece of software called Go to My PC, uh, made by the wonderful people at Citrix. Uh, now, if you've been using Windows uh, any time in the last sort of decade, you'd be somewhat familiar with the remote desktop connection features in Windows XP and Vista. Uh, and actually, they uh, were partly written by uh, some code monkeys from Citrix. Uh, but, of course, uh, you might have thought, oh, remote desktop applications, they're slow, uh, they're, they're very clunky, uh, you need to install software, get through firewalls and routers, uh, and they're not worth the hassle uh, in, in, in reality. And you would be entirely true if you hadn't used GoToMyPC. Because GoToMyPC uh, is an award-winning program 
that uh, enables you to access computers remotely over the, any computer that has an internet connection. So that means if you're overseas and you need to access your home computer, it's just a few clicks away. If you're at home and you need to access the work computer, it's, again, just a few clicks away. You can control the desktop remotely. You can access files and photos and videos. Whatever it is that you need to get at remotely, go to my PC can help you do that. Now, what we're doing here is because we, I know you're not going to just take my word for it. You're thinking, well, hang on, he might have used it, but uh, yeah, he's getting paid by go to, by Citrix to, to plug their program. Well, yeah, that's true. So we thought, well, what we might do is give you guys the opportunity to uh, try it out for 30 days, no charge, uh, no obligation to use it after those 30 days, but uh, with the hope that I'm sure you'll be like me, that after you've used it for 30 days, you'll be asking yourself, hang on, how did I ever live without go to my PC before? Now, to get redeem this special offer, all you have to do is uh, go to www.gotomypc.com slash techpodcasts. That's go to mypc.com slash tech podcast to try out a free 30 day trial of go to my PC, the easiest remote access service available. Try it for 30 days and I'm sure you'll agree that uh, it's one of the more remarkable pieces of software written out there for this new 21st century cloud computing age. And we thank Citrix for their support of the Sunday talk. Well, we're now into the home stretch of the Queensland election. It's a mere six days away, and it's all getting very exciting uh, with, of course, uh, the latest opinion polls having come out in today's Sunday Mail, uh, Galaxy Poll, uh, and it's just like the same one from a fortnight ago, showing that the LNP are leading Labor 51 to 49 on a two-party preferred basis. Now, a couple of interesting points here while we're doing our sort of poly watch. Uh, both parties are down a point on the primary vote. The LNP are at 43% and Labor are down to 40%. The Greens are up to 9%, which uh, according to Daryl Giles of the Sunday Mail reckons uh, makes them likely to win uh, likely to win in Drapilli. Now, Anna Bly has, in, over the last seven days, increased her lead as preferred Premier from 48.37 to 50.36. And is considered more honest at 36 to 33, and more likely to keep her promises 43 to 34, than Lawrence Ringborg, who is thought more boring 55 to 21, and arrogant 44 to 33. However, Springborg leads on will stand up to Canberra 46-44. Well, it's not much of a lead. Bly is thought to perform better during the campaign by 48% against 35% for Springborg. 58% of respondents expect Labor to win compared with 64% a fortnight ago. Mm. Now, the poll was conducted on Wednesday and Thursday with a very small sample size of only 800 people. Uh, there's no geographic breakdowns, uh, but we'll hopefully get some more detail from the poll over the coming days. So, uh, yes, yeah, so some interesting figures there. doesn't really tell us much, though. Uh, although I think the interesting thing, actually, not moving away from the, the two-party preferred figure, which I think is... Uh, as we said in the intro, um, hardly spells good news for the LNP. And, and again, I'm supporting that it's actually good for Labor to be coming into the Saturday election as the underdog so that they can avoid that protest vote that tends to happen if you've got a, a, a sharp lead over your competitor and you're, you're the incumbent. Uh, I think here the key thing to have a look at is the breakdown in figures between the two uh, leaders, that Anna Bly is um, down as the preferred premier uh, by quite a considerable margin. Um, 
Uh, she's increased her lead, so 50% of people who responded thought she was the better Premier as opposed to 36% who thought that Lawrence Springborg should do the job. Uh, she's considered more honest and more likely to keep her promises and that Springborg's considered boring and arrogant. So, David, my question to you is, is Anna Bly the face of honesty and is Springborg boring and arrogant? What are your thoughts? Uh, it's... Uh... It's a cliche that you can always tell when a politicians are lying by the fact that their lips are moving. That does tend to color people's perceptions of, uh, of politicians in general, not just any, any one politician in particular. Um, I, wouldn't necess- I, wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say Anna Bly would be any more reputable or disreputable than any, any of the other politicians. I did see... I did see uh, a piece in published yesterday that some of the uh, pundits and insiders who, who have who have been uh, keeping an eye on the on the campaign seem to think that Anna Bly may be Labor's biggest problem in the in the campaign because because uh, apparently according to these pundits and insiders who who, who uh, only some of them are named in the article so it so it does tend to you do tend to think of it as more of a gossip piece. Some of them are saying that because Anna Bly isn't the uh, natural-born show person or campaigner that even Peter Beattie was, that is that does tend to generate some problems as far as getting the message across would be concerned. Although I did I did notice that uh, statistic you quoted a second ago that sixty percent of the people who answered that survey still thought Labour were going to win. That was that that number is uh, a might high. For my liking, uh, if you were, if you were looking for, a, if you were trying to get that particular campaign, if you if you were trying to push the Labour Party over the line, if sixty percent is still a bit high, I think for for that to be able to be done with any degree of success, because there is still that there is still that possibility that if enough if enough people think the result is done and dusted, they may change their vote. You may get that protest vote factor that could swing the that could swing the electorate. Uh, as far as as far as Lawrence Springborg is concerned, uh, the, the Labour Party are still campaigning pretty heavily on the on the uh, on the premise I I, uh, I brought up last week that uh, that uh, because he's because he was saying it's not the Great Depression all over again, comparing and he was being compared against Barack Obama, Kevin Rudd, and Gordon Brown, who were saying it is Great Depression all over again. That it makes him look like a fool. That's still. Labour still extracting a, quite a lot of mileage out of that, and uh, it does tend, it does begin to, does begin to play on the mind that, yeah, maybe he, maybe he would is, is a bit uh, less agreeable as as far as uh, as, as far as the uh, public image and, and the projected image of the uh, of the two would, would be would be uh, concerned. Yeah, it's um, it's I, I think Labor are onto a good line with this uh, not him not them not now uh, sort of painting them as the inexperienced opposition because of course that was the uh, the same sort of line that the Howard government took with Latham and Rudd in the 2004-2007 federal elections respectively and it backfired on Howard in the 2007 elections. What were we, we, we saying last week this is Springborg's third attempt? It is. What's that noise in the background? 
Are you watch, have you got I've got a fan going, but I don't know. If, I've got a fan going, and there are crickets outside, but the door is closed. I don't know if that's what you might be talking about. Oh, I know what it is. It's my stupid computer. These stupid oh. pop-up ads that you get that come up on your screen. Uh, but yeah, no, the uh, yeah, this is I think his third attempt um, at, at uh, an election going up against Labor, and the problem is is that uh, he. It's a very easy line for them to take, and I think that unlike with Howard, where it backfired in 2007 with Rudd, I think this is going to be a bit more like the Latham campaign in that I think it will be uh, quite an asset for the Labor Party here in Queensland to have played this line over the course of uh, over the course of the uh, over the course of the campaign. But I don't think Spring I don't think Lawrence Springbrook has exactly been doing himself too many favours uh, on. T- well, that was th- on Thursday. He was uh, on Thursday. He was uh, bemoaning the uh, state of the affairs with the health ministry, who had who had uh, promised to fix substandard accommodation in the in the regional areas, and had failed to do so. And he and and Lawrence Springborg is basically all but calling for the minister's head on a plate. In fact, he actually in fact he actually did use that phrase at one at one point that the uh, premier should be providing should be giving him the health minister's head on a plate. That that I didn't think was uh, entirely uh, helpful as as far as. Uh, as, as, as far as uh, Springboard presenting an image of uh, that he could do things differently, uh, and uh, this, and uh, was and was also was also capitalised upon later in the day by uh, Anna Bly when she made a statement warning that a Springboard government could jeopardise a number of the arrangements that had been made between the Commonwealth and the states. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's just, I mean, again, it comes back to uh, the way in which Springboard presents himself. Uh, and you can see, and it's in instances like that where you can see why uh, Springborg is, is leading over an obli with regards to being thought of more boring and arrogant. Yeah. Although, although a lot of these, you have, you, have to, you have to wonder how much this is um, the person themselves and how much is the... Um, Stage managed, uh, scripted uh, nature of campaign appearances and, and public image. There was at one, there was at one point in the um, sec, there was at one point in the second week, I think it was, where uh, someone who was who, who someone on the sidelines of an Annabelle press conference called out a question, and she responded that she wasn't going to answer the question because this guy was not one of the journalists who was there to cover the event. That had the possibility of backfiring on her too. Hmm. Well, speaking of things that um, potentially had the, the possibility of backfiring, we uh, at the end of last week we had the uh, leaders' debate uh, occur, which unfortunately didn't get much sort of media coverage. But I've got a short clip here from, uh, from Channel 7 News, by the looks of it, from the Courier-Mail, uh, that gives us a bit of an insight into what happened at uh, what's being touted as Bly versus the Borg. Yeah, some of these media players aren't exactly uh, quick. Here we say it depends on how big the clip is and how fast it takes to download. A lot of clownery and a little campaigning for the crowd gathered at the convention centre for the leaders' election debate. Can you please give it up for the Borghead? Premier Anna Bly and Lawrence Springborg faced off for the only formal debate of the campaign. 
The opposition leader stressed his would be a common sense government which paid off debt. We also have a deficit of $1.6 billion. And if you don't get your economy right, you can't grow jobs. Mr Springborg claimed the economy and the clean-up after this week's oil spill were proof of the government's failure to plan. But Premier Anna Bly said she had a clear strategy to tackle the economic difficulties ahead. Both leaders did agree that a hung parliament would be the worst outcome for Queenslanders, Mr Springborg encouraging voters to return a clear outcome at the election. Suzanne Kovacs for couriermail.com.au Okay, so that was a couriermail.com.au clip, but the footage was courtesy of Channel 7. Um, the interesting thing I found with the, the whole situation was uh, the, the consensus view seems to be that Lawrence Springwell came across as very aggressive. And uh, I think the best commentary I've heard was that he can probably count himself lucky he only had a limited audience uh, because... Uh, if he is being seen as arrogant and boring, if the people had have seen the aggressive nature that he'd taken in the in the leaders' debate, um, then uh, it m- might have had the potential to really backfire on him because we've seen the way in which uh, these uh, leaders' debates can sometimes flip the election. We saw Alan Carpenter's debate win over Colin Barnett uh, showed he had a flip with in terms of the polling with. Uh, the figures, but then uh, that ended up the late campaign collapse, negating most of that. Uh, so I think uh, he was kind of lucky. But uh, did you manage to catch any of the leaders' debate? Um, no, I didn't actually. It was uh, it was recorded at lunchtime and uh, screened on ABC's State Line. But I did I did miss it, uh, not entirely accidentally. I must admit. Uh, didn't I didn't honestly think it was going to be that particularly edifying to watch. Uh, sounds like it's fortunate in a way that I did miss the. Uh, sounds like it's fortunate in a way that I did miss the uh, aggressive way the uh, the Borg was uh, approaching things. Yeah, I've, I've been. I've. Uh, I don't think it would have been particularly. Uh, I don't think it would have necessarily done him any favours, let's just say. That's, that's, that's the words I'm looking for, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you sort of got to wonder, you go into these, and like uh, during the debate, because uh, Springborg's come up with this uh, rather interesting, if not entirely original concept of uh, helping to repay back the, the deficit that we've got at a state level by uh, doing an economy drive. Uh, well, that's what it essentially mm-hmm. is, and we all know uh, from the wonderful 1970s television program, Yes Minister, uh, how eccentric um, economy drives are. And, uh, so- and you know, the first part of the, you know, the first, the first and the biggest expense for any company, not pro- not just the public service or the private sector, any company, the biggest and most consistent expense that is. That can be targeted in an economy drive. What payroll? Oh, absolutely. Payroll is one of the first big things to get hit, and then uh, the same as the thing with employment. Uh, well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm driving at. And if, we talked if, about that. If they're going to save, if they're going to try and save a billion dollars to pay off the debt, the first place the first place to look at trimming the fat is uh, in the ranks of the public service. Even though they claim they won't do that, it's the it's the uh, First place to start, the biggest place, biggest place to start. They say they're going to, um, they say it's going to be uh, 
natural attrition among the senior executives. That would be the, be the uh, first tranche of cutbacks, but I honestly can't see it. honestly can't see that happening anytime soon. I've not I've not seen too many executive appointments, let alone executive retirements, uh, announced recently. And it's always and there are always far more there are always far more positions available in the rank and file than there are in the executive, even though the uh, monetary amounts may only be comparable. Yeah, and it gives it gives Anna Bly a very easy line to retort with, and that is that she can come out and an exact quote of her was, um, she responded by comparing herself to Joe Bjorki Peterson, saying the former Premier had borrowed to build infrastructure like power plants and the Gateway Bridge, and she would do the same. And the quote is, I stand for jobs. I will not cut back government activity at a time when we are facing the worst global financial crisis since the Depression. So you tie all of this together into... Uh, Oh, and off on my screen, I'm getting an LMP banner ad <laughs> coming up on my screen. Uh, that's the that's the, that's the other thing. You notice that you notice in the uh, links I put in this planning thread, there are very few Courier Mail links in there. If I've been able to avoid it, yeah, because I did notice that the bulk of the that the bulk of stories about the election and the election homepage itself have LNP banners on them, and. <laughs> Gee, does that come my, as any my, great surprise? My, yeah, my opinion of Korea Mail is my opinion of Korea Mail is public knowledge has been for years, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it was not a big surprise. And there are such things as perceived conflicts of interest, even even uh, even the uh, the uh, candidate constable I linked to was uh, given a bit of a uh, talking to over that, and it's also why I have to be careful with what I say if anything matters. That, very matters that involve the day job. So, uh, so for the Courier Mail to have LNP banners on all its election stories, you could almost, it, it's almost, it's almost getting to the stage of a fifth column. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's no secret that the Courier Mail are, are very much, uh, liberal national supporters, uh, in much the same way that the Australian, I mean, the Australian for, for many years was no, had the nickname of the GG, the Government Gazette. Uh, under, under Which Howard. is interesting because they're owned by the same company. They're both News Corporation papers. That's exactly right. And News Corp, by its very nature, is has a very right-wing conservative leaning. And uh, I always find it amusing. Like, you look at all these galaxy polls. Uh, even look in the 2007 federal election, the galaxy polls. And this is why I don't trust galaxy all that much because they generally stick with small sample sizes. I mean, 800 is not a terribly big sample size. That gives quite a large margin of error. And uh, of quite a number of uh, quite a few percent, and uh, the the simple fact is is that uh, even in the two thousand and seven election, a lot of the galaxy polls seem to be at odds with the other three main polls, and you've sort of got to ask yourself the question: um, Okay, when when does honest reporting come into it, and when does when does sort of political bias take shape? But I mean, I don't want this to turn into a sort of a courier mail right wing rant uh, because that's 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 a whole episode in and of itself. Looking into I think I think of most the of these papers will just write whatever it takes to sell copy. Well, that's exactly right, and that's because 2009 is, of course, the year we're seeing the, the, the print, humble print newspaper and magazine uh, die a very quick death. Uh, but uh, So, yeah, so this, um, this economy drive that uh, Springborg's announcing, which is sort of, he seems to be taking the paradoxical view of saying, oh, we're going to cut government waste and at the same time uh, boost jobs, when his uh, sort of... Uh, plan is just uh, sort of do a unilateral kind of cut of funding. Uh, La- Labor Party got an analysis done by Professor John Warner, uh, who seems to be rather respected when it comes to the intricacies of public administration. And they've actually started circulating a document uh, called the Warner Report. And uh, 
I happen to have it here, and it um, sort of basically it's going into an analysis of of this promise that uh, um, that Springborg has made, and can it uh, potentially actually uh, have the the uh, the the cuts to public spending? Will they actually? Uh, uh, succeed in what they're attempting to do. And uh, as he says here, uh, large savings are notoriously hard to extract from government budgets, not because governments and their uh, public servants are selfish or interested in... Uh, I wish this PDF would stop scrolling like crazy. But because governments are buffeted by rising community expectation of services, increasing cost pressures from delivery instruments. Governments are not in control of all the factors that contribute to their cost pressures other factors intervene, such as rates of inflation, wage pressures, supply cost variations, critical shortages, events, and natural disasters. Uh, major, I don't know what's going on with Adobe this morning. Major saving initiatives involve considerable political commitment to see through. They come at a high cost in terms of political capital. For that reason, it is also hard for governments to impose major savings over multiple budget years. It would be extremely difficult, say, to extract one billion dollars per annum from the Queensland budget for three years running. Savings initiatives are attractive and relatively easy for oppositions to announce in election campaigns in that they provide them with an offset of a nominal margin against which to balance any proposed increases in spending on other policy areas. Such cutting initiatives are usually vague or rely on generic commitments, e.g. savings of X millions across the board, uh, which is basically what Springboard's come out with, rather than yeah. carefully itemised cut targets with schedules of cuts announced prior to the election. It is common and sometimes popular to announce cuts to soft targets such as corporate services, overheads or advertising. But these items remain important to running government effectively and will not generate the magnitude of savings proposed. Savings initiatives are usually sold on two superficial arguments. One, that greater efficiencies can be extracted or greater streamlining of administrative supports can be achieved. And two, that waste and duplication can be eliminated and thus free up some existing resources. But in practice, few claimed efficiencies or reductions in wasteful expenditure are ever discovered or realised. Therefore, if substantial cuts are imposed, they tend to involve a reduction in service levels, greater rationing of services, governments divesting themselves from certain responsibilities, perhaps entirely, or to the private or voluntary sector, or delaying intended future commitments well into the out years. Now, that's all very interesting because if we tie in what the LNP are doing, considering they had the same sort of political persuasion as the Howard government did for a decade, or of course, just that. Um, coalition in general, because all, of course they're all right of centre. Uh, we saw that what ended up under a Howard regime being uh, let's leave it to a lot of market forces, let's cut funding and, and allow the private sector to take over. I mean, childcare was a classic example of this. Uh, it's the easy go-to example, to be honest, when you come to these sorts of ideas. And the, and the most high-profile one. Oh, absolutely, because you've talked to people and you want to make your point nice and clear, go to an easy target, and that is uh, childcare. Look at the mess we ended up in childcare after 10 years of, of the Howard government uh, essentially saying, oh, yeah, we don't need to fund it ourselves because if we just uh, leave it to market forces, that'll kind of find its way through it. And there's a lot of talk about leaving market forces to sort out things like the global financial crisis. And you can see that if the LNP do go ahead with a massive cost-saving initiative like the economy drive they're suggesting, suggesting Professor Wanner seems to believe that the um, what we'll end up having is a situation where funding is cut to a lot of uh, big uh, government areas, and uh, that's the same problem I think the Kevin Rudd government has run into, where they were talking about, like, Lindsay Tanner's razor gang going through and, and, and cutting back. Uh, I mean, they had the sensibility, and they were lucky to have a very uh, 
spendeth on government in John Howard that it was very easy to find a couple of billion dollars worth of savings uh, to uh, to cut uh, and not cause too much pain. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if they announce any further government cuts in this year's budget in May. But uh, I don't think uh, this idea of Springboards is actually going to give him... If he gets in on it uh, and suddenly discovers that he can't afford to, because one is right, you you do judge a government on the level of service it provides. I mean, look at how much flack the Labor Party are copying here in Queensland over the health system. Uh, even though the problems are generally not of a political nature, they're of the the way in which the people running the show at, at a sort of hospital-based level are kind of uh, handling things. But uh, they're copying a lot of political flack uh, for, for the state of the health system. Yeah, and there was a, there was also there was also that one particular fact that was mentioned in the article you were reading that uh, the that the, the opposition would probably be looking for uh, for uh, getting rid of duplicated services, but uh, it's only those on it's only those on the inside, like those who actually who actually work for the public service uh, as as I do, who know that sometimes these duplicated services just plain don't exist. Uh, there's all, and where there are where there are some duplications that have been that have been identified, a lot of them are already in the process of being eliminated. Uh, the uh, the uh, least controversial example I can cite is uh, public service payroll. I don't get payslips from I don't get payslips from the Queensland Police Service. I get payslips from the Queensland Public Service. It's the one payroll for the whole of the public service, police included. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, in in more and in more recent times, the uh, in more recent times, the uh, various departments payroll the, the various departments uh, payroll branches have actually been combined into a whole of government a, a whole of government instrumentality its official name is the shared service agency and their job is basically to administer the single state government payroll across all its various departments there the the, uh, the uh, Queensland police's Payroll branch is part of this shared service agency nowadays. So if we have, if we uh, want to do anything with, if we want to do anything with our pay packets like uh, a uh, like a, 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 a direct debit or a deduction, we get onto the people who, who the people who represent our branch in in our in in the uh, shared service agency, and they take care of things. But it's it all goes back to the one. The one Queensland public service payroll for for the the entire department, where mm. there there may have been separate payrolls once upon a time, but there aren't any more. So that in in that in that particular instance, there may there may not be any uh, remnant duplication to get rid of because it's al- it's already been removed. Well, that's the thing. Just by nature, you tend to find that there is a lot of um, tightening of the belt across government departments every time there's a budget announced. Uh, things just happen by that way. But I think mm. actually – yeah, sorry. And, and, and uh, it was also – it was announced in uh, – it was, it was announced in the second week that by, by the Borg, they're promising to deliver the police two helicopters for aerial patrols in southeast Queensland. And I can I, – and I'm, I'm looking at that and I can just tell that is going to be a considerable drain – 
on the resources that we resources that we have just from the fuel and and uh, pilot tr- pilot training alone, because if these helicopters are supposed to be in the air all day, every day, hmm. that's going that's going to eat up a lot of fuel and uh, and the resources. And we, and then there's also and there's also the various charges that need to be paid to Air Services Australia for the uh, flight rights, takeoff fees, landing fees, uh, air traffic clearance, and, and and so on and so forth. And uh, that's and. Money is at least part of the reason why the Queensland Police don't have a helicopter and have not asked for one. Yeah. Well, Professor Wanner here has made a couple of um, suggestions uh, about how to uh, achieve a $1 billion per annum cut over the next three years. Uh, But just to... uh, uh, He suggested these are the seven ways in which it could be um, achieved. And all of them really don't um, sound terribly promising and uh, makes it kind of a, a negative policy for the for the LMP. The first one is reduce the number of government employees, so cut jobs. So it makes it a very this makes it a very easy message for Anna Bly to sell. And you can see when you read this document where their kind of uh, spin on on the topics going. So number one is reduce the number of government employees across the board. You'd need to re- cut about twelve thousand uh, staff per annum. Uh, and basically 37,000 employees over the next three years. Number yeah. two is reduce the number of non-frontline employees by 12,500, and that means you take the cuts to the back room and support staff, uh, and uh, it'd be representing about a third of your essential support staff, and that means uh, 90% reduction in such staff over three years. Uh, so basically after the three years, we would have cut all but 10% of your support staff for the government. And, and that's basically where I am in the, in the corporate structure. So that would be that would be me out on the scrap heap, basically. Yeah, so it makes it very hard for you to suddenly vote LNP. Precisely. Number three. Even, with, even without the union movement saying, exact, saying much the same thing in far more direct terminology. Yeah. Number three, cut the provision for superannuation for government employees. Yeah. Uh, it, as they, but as he says here, that's fine, but it just creates a larger future liability. And oh, yeah. uh, a lot of governments are following Queensland's lead to fully fund future superannuation liabilities. Number four is cut the capital budget. And uh, this would have to come from their, the own funding sources of available cash the government commits to the capital budget, around $5 billion in round figures for 2008-9. Cutting borrowings, $10.9 billion but in, uh, in 2008-9, but increasing over the forward estimates by a further $10 billion is irrelevant to this exercise. We would simply see less capital works undertaken on essential infrastructure, such as water, roads, rail, energy. Uh, and one note here that Mr. Springborg has announced that he will retain existing infrastructure spending, which apparently rules out cutting the capital budget. I honestly can't see how he would be able to do it if he's mm. if he's after the savings. That is one of them. If it, if he's after monetary savings, he's going to have to find that money somewhere. And yeah. you've just identified the three main areas that that would that would uh, that the savings would have to come from. And so there is basically no way. Well, hang on. That's the list's uh, not finished yet. There's about another four items. There's some, actually sorry, go on. some interesting additions on this list. Uh, you could cut depreciation in the sense that longer asset timelines could be tolerated, lower rates of depreciation for public assets could be declared and agreed over time with the Auditor General, but this is likely to result in poorer asset quality, worse services or accommodation, older plant and equipment. 
Number and less reliable plants and equipment. Hmm. Number six, grants, which are also a form of expense, could be reduced by $1 billion, but most grants are relatively small and tightly targeted. Uh, some grants are federal grants or governed by intergovernmental agreements and so effectively exempt from cuts. Uh, other grants are regarded as sacred institutions. One such grant where the government has the discretion to reduce or eliminate the expense is the state fuel subsidy rebate, which would save $572 million per annum. But this option would likely result in predictable outrage from Queenslanders. Cutting out other grants or reducing them sufficiently to generate the intended savings measure is likely to cause widespread community outrage. Such as the first home buyer scheme, which is two hundred and fourteen million dollars, grants to not for profit bodies, one point two four billion, grants to local government, one point two billion, and grants to non government schools, one point seven billion. The effects over three years would be at the cost of declining social capital and trust in government. Number seven is the final option. Other operating expenses could be cut. While not involving much loss of public sector employment, this option would cut down on other essential items to deliver services to the community, such as drugs and clinical supplies for hospitals, $860 million, school supplies and material, $468 million, hospital repairs, $144 million, school repairs, $143 million, and even emergency vehicles and other equipment, such as you were mentioning before about things like helicopters for the police. Many of these other operating expenses allow agencies to perform their functions to a community acceptable standard. Many agencies have already had demands to tighten their own their other operating expenses over the years, this is like you were saying, without compromising quality. But these amounts have been relatively small reductions, not a major and repeated cut. For example, the MES notes that operating expenses have been tightened by approximately $190 million over the present budget year. So there are your seven options, and basically, as you were sort of saying before, was it's either cut jobs, cuts government spending, uh, and either way, you're either going to end up annoying uh, hundreds of thousands of people who suddenly lose their jobs in an economic crisis, which is seeing people losing their jobs, and secondly, you're either that or you're going to cut government spending on capital works and operating expenses, which is just going to mean lower quality of service. And all that does is upset people with the government. Like, look at the situation with health. Yeah, and, yeah, and health would basically be the tip of the iceberg if all this went ahead, because there, there are they are at least trying to address the problems that have been identified. The uh, when the uh, when the uh, business about the uh, not yet completed uh, health infrastructure renovations broke on Tuesday. That it was the response for that was taken off health department and reassigned to public works, and that, well, which would which would basically be involved in, the, in which would basically be involved in building and maintaining the infrastructure anyway. Uh, so that's so basically reassigning an existing reassigning an existing task, which made made sense to me, but. The, the uh, you, you, you you mentioned just now the the, the the three main the three main outcomes out of the, out of all these all these various methods of reducing reducing expenditure that and, and trying to realise things that may not be may not be available to be realised in the first place and all three of those identified outcomes are essentially negative. You you have people losing your jobs, people. Uh, People who uh, are suddenly finding they have they have to pay more or use outdated equipment or uh, and and the third one you, you mentioned the uh, all this uh, infrastructure all this infrastructure construction that's going on at the moment may well grind to a halt and 
you don't want to see the uh, state of Lutwich and Kalinga at the moment with the construction of the uh, of the bypass tunnel. There have there have been whole sways, almost entire blocks of buildings that have been leveled and and raised just to fit this, just to fit in the uh, proposed extension of the northern busway to Kedron, and also link it up to the uh, also link it up to the uh, airport link tunnel. It's that's a, about to be dug between Kedron and and Toomble. And at the other end of the the other end of the proposed tunnel, that's been uh, at the Toomble end. That's basically been cleared away as well. And you, you drive through those areas, and they are absolute. They are complete and utter wastelands. I drove through there. I drove through there just yesterday, and I've never before been able to see Lutwich Road from the from the hill uh, on the Gympie Road. I, I, I've been I've been in Brisbane for. Ooh, I've now I've been in Brisbane for something like ten or twelve ten or twelve years now in this in this uh, particular state and yeah I've all that all that area has previously been built in it's now flat and leveled and if the construction process grinds to a halt now it's going to stay that way for 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 an identifiable for, for the foreseeable targets and that is only going to be is going going to be a complete failure as far as as far as construction, as, as far as the uh, urban renewal involved would be concerned, if this construction project stops now, hmm. and so it, so, and, and it's, it's also it's also going to it's also going to disrupt the people who people whose houses were resumed, the people who have the people who are living along the fringe of that living along the fringe of that devastation. The, the, there's they're, they're most likely going to see their property values fall through the floor as well. Because who wants to live? Ne- who wants to live next to? A, who wants to live next to a, an open sandbox where they were planning to build a? Where they were planning to build a freeway when the money ran out and they, they just left it there. Who'd want to live next to that? Mr. So, Springboard, uh, presumably. Who? Mr. Springboard, presumably. No, he lives out in Warwick. Last I heard. So he he he, he doesn't have these. He doesn't have to. Uh, Deal with those sorts of problems on on such an immediate basis, as far as I'm aware. What was I, where was I going with that thought? Yeah. So, and if the, and if the infrastructure construct if the infrastructure projects grind to a halt, that's only going to that's only going to leave the original problem unresolved, dragging on further and further into the future until the until it gets into such a state that it may be irreparable. Well, yeah, that's that, that's you've pretty much said what Professor Warner said in his concluding remarks. Uh, he said, for a service delivery state with substantial population growth pressures, it defies credibility to claim that one billion dollars can be extracted from the across-the-board expenses of government without affecting services at the front line. Natural attrition alone is unlikely to generate the required savings, and if categories of service deliverers are exempt, natural attrition would take almost two decades to approach this saving figure. Minimum. In the meantime, corporate services and backroom administrative support would almost grind to a halt. It would be socially undesirable and politically unwise to grant cuts to cut grants to the community, and this would fly in the face of other worthy political or policy initiatives: cheaper petrol, assistance to home buyers, assistance to voluntary associations delivering community services, etc. There is perhaps some scope to trim other operating expenses, delaying new vehicles, cutting back on maintenance, making assets and equipment last longer. 
but these are likely to have a direct impact on the quality of service delivery and potentially generate only relatively small amounts of savings, not the $1 billion of savings claimed by Mr Springboard. It should also be noted that the present government has extracted $60 million in savings over the 2008-2009 budget and recently announced its intention to cut $180 million in next year's budget and a further $280 million in 2010, 2011 and 2011-2012. As already mentioned, there has also been additional tightening and other operating expenses over the present budget year. Now, I know that the whole document is obviously, it's a Labor-endorsed um, policy research document, and uh, of course, it's obviously going to be very pro-Labor's position and anti-LMP position. But at the end of the day, Professor Warner, we do have to say that he has some integrity, uh, and he uh, obviously would have not put his name to something like this uh, if he didn't think that what he was writing was the honest truth. Uh, so even though some of the language might be swept up in a little bit of uh, Labor rhetoric, I do think the clear message there uh, is quite honest and true, and that is that uh, Springborg's uh, unilateral um, uh, economy drive uh, is uh, all talk, really, just to kind of uh, say, yeah, look, vote us in because uh, we will save money. But, yeah, that, and... Not everyone may not everyone may consider that the possibility that there may, may not be that money to be saved. Well, the advantage, I suppose, in any way is that if Lon Springborg does get in and does go on this economy drive in three years' time, we've upset so many people that Labor will get back in just by default, and it'll be another mortgage government. Yeah, and at least that way they break the cycle of being a long-term government and uh, can present themselves as a fresh face in three years' time and, uh, and and maybe go on to another. Because the Labor Party historically in, a, in Queensland have um, held Queensland uh, quite considerably. You would have thought uh, the Nationals might have had a bigger showing here, but no, they haven't. Labor well, has yeah, held Joe them Yoke for... Yeah, served for something like, 28, 29 years. Mm-hmm. So, so everyone thinks so, and that's why everyone thinks that's uh, that's why everyone thinks Queensland's a, a nominally national party state. Not doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily prove to, proven to have been the case at all. Mm. I think overall, though, this campaign so far has just been incredibly lacklustre. It's because we're in the middle of a global financial crisis. Both sides of politics are trying to uh, do the cheapest election campaign ever, uh, and I think. Uh, the uh, the uh, sort of at the moment, what's happening is uh, the uh, the Labor Party. I think they are in danger of losing this election. I mean, let's let's be perfectly honest here. Uh, even though the polls are say, uh, uh, are giving a two party preferred figure of fifty one forty nine, which according to Anthony Green's election calculator is a swing of six percent, which means Labor would still win the election, forty eight seats to thirty seven. Uh, that's a significant reduction because the current situation they are at the moment. Uh, the number of seats they have right now in Parliament is uh, 58-26 uh, at the moment. Uh, so they've got quite a, uh, a considerable lead and they can afford to lose quite a number of seats before it uh, uh, becomes a major problem, like it becomes a hung Parliament uh, when we get to a swing of about... Where are we? Here we go. A swing of 52.2%, uh, or two-party preferred figure of 52.2, with a swing of 7.2%. That gives you a situation of 44 versus 41. And that's a, that's a hung parliament. And it's not until you get... LNP don't get an, a majority until we get to um, 53.1%, a swing of 8.1. That gives them a one-seat majority. Uh, yeah. 45 so, to 40. So that would... So, uh 
that, that, what, 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 was that, what was that majority again? Sorry. Uh, let me just go back to it. Eight point, a swing of 8.1, giving a two-party preferred figure of 53.1%, meaning that the LNP wins the election 45 seats to 40. Yeah, Chucking because you do, need, you do need a majority of at least two seats. There are 89 seats in the state parliament, so you basically have to factor in as if it were, basically have to factor in basically have to factor in that you need to have at least 45 seats because that's that is more than 50 percent. But you also have to have the extra one seat for the uh, for the uh, nominally divorced uh, position of speaker. Yeah, I'll, true. I'll but, uh, he's he's nominally divorced, but he's he, the speaker is nominally divorced from the party machinery. Although uh, you could be forgiven for thinking otherwise, considering how Mike Reynolds' uh, positions on uh, various matters relating to Palm Island. Uh, so, so you you do need the, uh, the government of the day needs majority of at least two seats mm. because it, one of those seats is lost in the election of the Speaker, who has, as I was saying, is nominally divorced from the party machinery, but has more often than not been appointed by the government benches. It's the first order of business after the swearing in of the members that the parliament elects one of its own to serve as Speaker. It doesn't necessarily have to be one of their own, though. It has to be someone in the parliament and just normally ends up That's what up I mean, being, parliament, the parliamentarians. Yeah. Um, I thought when you said one of their own, being one of their own party, which is normally oh, how no. it ends up going. Because the, the par- smart thing would be to do is if you were a one-seat majority government, you'd appoint it to one of the independents uh, as, as Speaker of the House. And uh, that way, then you keep your one-seat majority on the floor mm. of the parliament. Well, that, yeah, and the, you get rid the, of one uh, of the independents. That means that then, let's assume Labor sided with all of the independence that would only leave three which means they'd have a two-seat voting majority on every uh, every issue yeah as i understand it i could be wrong the uh candidates for speaker are, are put forward by the there's a candidate for speaker put forward by the government and a candidate for speaker put forward by the opposition that's the that's the basic that, that, that that's that's the uh that's the uh process in its most basic form. I have read in a number of state and federal hand sides where there's been a government candidate put forward and nobody else is and nobody else is nominated. So the uh, so the uh, member is elected speaker basically unopposed. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure. There'd be no reason why not. But I'm not exactly sure if it's possible for any of the account for any of the independents or non for any of the independents to put one of them to put themselves forward as speaker. Uh, they probably would want to. Uh, they probably wouldn't be considered as as uh, effective, so to speak, as a uh, as a uh, party who, as a uh, party nominated speaker. That's also that's also been one of the is there's been the um, that's also why it's been that's also been why there's been this uh, consideration every so often of the possibility of an independent speaker. Uh, usually, every so often, an opposition an opposition will uh, start complaining that the uh, speaker, being being uh, nominated by the government and, not exa- and basically appointed unopposed, would appear to be in the is appear to be apparently in the government's pocket. That's another one of those perceived conflict of interest things people like to gripe about every so often. It's and every and. When the opposite, when the various oppositions do start complaining about perceived conflict of interest to the speaker, one of the first things they will say is if there was an, if there was a truly independent speaker. But, they, but there was the 
as I said, the appointment of the Speaker is the first order of business of a parliament after the members have been sworn in. And if the opposition didn't put forward a candidate then, they basically missed their chance. <laughs> so they can gripe about independent speakers all they like, but if they don't put forward a candidate, even if, if they don't put forward a candidate at the, at the time, they're not exactly doing themselves any favours. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how everything uh, works out for the election because, as we said, it's on Saturday and by this time next week we'll know the result. Well, let's hope we do know the result. Uh, sometimes these things can take a couple of days. But uh, just before we wrap up, we might go to our uh, campaign WTF moment of the week. Uh, every week we're having a bit of a look at uh, those particular moments in the campaign that uh, always seem to crop up. Uh, of course, we had last week the uh, the, the potential uh, contest between uh, Warwick Kappa and uh, Pauline Hansen down in the Cedar Bow Desert. And, of course, the people in Bow Desert were all just going WTF. And what on earth did we do to deserve this? So those are the sorts of moments that we're trying to reflect on. And, of course... Um, once again, it's another Pauline Handsome moment. She never fails to impress with regards to uh, uh, strange things occurring. Uh, in, in a way, I'm almost sad that she said this is her last stab at politics uh, because, if nothing else, she's provided an interesting source of entertainment over the last 10 years. And, uh, David, you uh, you found this particular one. Did uh, you want to tell our listeners what it is? All right. Yep. It's It's basically one of those... Basically, one of those moments you do get, or at least, at least any public figure gets, and it's it's meticulously timed to cause maximum embarrassment. One of Pauline Hansen's ex-boyfriends, who she was with some thirty years ago, has found some pictures he took of her way back when. They were nudes, and he has released them to the general public. For, for the general consumption and edification. This story broke just last night. It's all over the Sunday morning news. It's, there's, it's, there's been in-depth, in, in-depth reports and punditry upon it. And when I, when I heard about this morning, my initial reaction was the good old whiskey tango foxtrot. <laughs> I've never been a chanting, screaming fan of hers. That much is plain. But in all honesty, this is the sort of thing she could have done without. I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish the embarrass. I wouldn't wish the embarrassing photos shock on my worst enemy. That's just too low. Even for even for even for a political campaign, that's just too low. Well, he reckons that um, this particular guy, Jack Johnson, uh, who's a former soldier claims he just found them uh, in his collection when he was uh, a friend of him sort of converting them over all of his photographs from the last 30 years over to digital formats, uh, which is a good thing to do. I think it's a good thing to do to convert over in this 21st century cloud computing age. But uh, you got to wonder about the cynical part of my brain wonders about the timing of these photos. As you said, maxi- right. maximum That's damage, maximum too. time. Um, it couldn't have happened next week, next Sunday it couldn't have been. But no, no, it had to be had to be the week out from the election. And... Uh, Maybe this is Warwick Kappa, the ghost of Warwick Kappa, uh, coming back to, to haunt Pauline Hanson. He said, well, mate, you're not going to let me do the run, so uh, I'm going to get some nude photos of you and uh, plaster them all over the, over, over the MSM. But, uh, Considering Kappa was being sponsored by a lad's mag, they probably would have been interested in printing the pics themselves if they'd come across them any sooner, but that's, that's, uh, 
that's that's my own cynicism kicking in there. Yeah, but uh, I he, I like his uh, claim for why she was interested in him. Uh, or oh, had the best Harley in town. That's why she was keen on me. Uh, yeah. Uh, living uh, next door to Bogans. Some weird relationships have been built on far less. That's all I can say. <laughs> Very true. So that's our campaign WTF moment of the week. Uh, Pauline Hansen and uh, her ex-lover uh, and the internet photo phenomenon. It's... Uh, just another thing that uh, makes me pleased, Pauline Hansen's around, although, to be perfectly honest, it's something I didn't particularly want to see on my Sunday morning. Sorry about that. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's all right. It's all in the interest. Thank God this is an audio podcast. Uh, but if you are desperate, desperate to see the photos of Pauline Hansen, uh, you can find them at couriermail.com.au. Uh, alternatively, if you get bored of looking honesty, at those... honesty, you're really not missing much. No, you're not. And if you get bored of those, you can go and click on one of the many LMP ads that adorn the Courier Mail site. I've gone there for Three links today, and all three app pages have uh, given me LNP ads up the top. So uh, yeah, that's too coincidental to be coincidental. Oh no, I think it's a coincidence. Really? No, <laughs> it was a coincidence <laughs> that I said that. So uh, yeah, it's uh, not terribly uh, cool. So uh, that next weekend, we'll hopefully be able to do a few more WTF moments of the week. Uh, and we might do a recap on the ones we've already had. But if you notice any campaign WTF moments this week, please get in touch with us, the Sunday Talk at btrproductions.org, uh, and we'll uh, mention them in the next episode. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of another episode of the Sunday Talk. Uh, another week looking at, uh, well, not another week. The episode only went for two, uh, just over an hour, but another hour or so looking at the week that was uh, in the Queensland election. Uh, David, uh, how do you think today's episode went? Have we walked away from it relatively unscathed? Yes, I'd, yeah, I'd, that's that would be the, the short answer. As much as uh, as much as any any of these could be uh, could be construed as damaging or hurtful, which I don't think they have been yet. I think, we've, I think we've done well. I say that every week. I mean it every week. We've done well. Uh, it's going to be an interesting, going to be an interesting final week in the campaign. Uh, both the major parties have their campaign launches this afternoon, so it's sure to dominate the uh, evening bulletin. And uh, is, and uh, be interesting to see, uh, see how this how the campaign goes uh, as the week progresses. I'll have to I'll have to uh, look up whether or not we have an advertising blackout this time around. We have had in, in in years past, but it varies from state to state. So I have to look up. I have to look up see if there is a uh, advertising blackout this this week. I'm not sure. And uh, if it comes, if it does come, at least we'll have uh, a few day, a couple, a couple of days respite to be able to make up our minds in peace. Which is something I was amazed didn't happen with the uh, presidential campaign in the states. They were they were campaigning right up until the opening of the polling booths. They were even there were even uh, there were even campaign interviews in, in the halftime of a Monday night football, which I thought was amazing. It always amuses me, not so much the uh, campaign advertising blackout, but the fact that you can have a campaign launch three weeks into the campaign and only a few days out from the actual election. You've all, I've always thought that my idea of a camp, maybe I'm just a bit strange in this way, but I would have thought that if you're launching a campaign, you'd launch a campaign at the start of the campaign, not three quarters of the way through it. Okay, I can tell you why that is. 
It was revealed during the uh, 2007 federal election campaign. It all comes down to money. Up until the yeah, the uh, the government and opposition can still access can still access access taxpayers' money for running their campaigns. Up until they do the campaign launch. When they do the campaign launch, uh, when they do the campaign launch, their campaigns have to be self-funded from then on to polling day, which is usually why they've been left until right at, until the last possible moment <laughs> to do the to do the campaign launch, so they can still get taxpayers' money from it. I did notice the Greens had their campaign launch last week on the on the eighth, so they've been they've been self-funded the entire second half of the campaign, and that's that that has actually. Uh, it's actually from the major parties. Yeah, I understand all that, but it still doesn't change my view that I think it's a peculiarly weird thing. But, uh, hey, elections are peculiarly weird things themselves. But something that isn't peculiarly weird is our website at thesundaytalk.com where you can access past episodes, a discussion forum, Twitter feeds, Facebook fan pages, uh, donation buttons, cafe press, merchandise stores, anything that helps you to get through the six days of the seven that don't involve any new episodes of the Sunday Talk. Uh, Another nice little sieg there. Yeah, so if you want to look us up on the web, we are at www.thesundaytalk.com. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice, not bad little website. Uh, this, of course, brings us to episode 24, uh, nearly a quarter century there. And uh, next weekend, uh, we are going into live-only mode. Yes, live mode only. Uh, we will not be doing a regular episode on Sunday. Uh, we will uh, be doing our next episode, which paradoxically is not going to be episode 25. Episode 25 will be in two weeks' time. Uh, so don't think that there's going to be an odd number or something suddenly happen. Um we are taking a break for one week on the Sunday morning because uh, next Saturday evening, starting at about 6 p.m., we will be doing a live election evening special where David and I will be uh, looking at up to the second coverage of uh, the latest information coming in from the various seats. Uh, we're pulling in extensive uh, coverage from a variety of news sources, uh, and we might even have a few special guests drop in. We'll have to wait and see uh, if we can uh, line everyone's schedules up and the planets in the right orbits and so on. But... Uh, uh, we'll be doing that starting next Saturday evening at 6 p.m. Uh, to uh, cover the Queensland election special. And that'll probably go through till about 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, obviously, we want to cover it up until uh, the result is called. And uh, let's put it this way. We'll go longer than the ABC, uh, even if it's only by a second. Uh, we'll start <laughs> at 6 o'clock and we're going to go through until one or two minutes after the ABC finish. Uh, so that's the target I've set us, and I think they're aiming to finish at about 10 o'clock. So we'll see how we go. Uh, but sometimes you never have a, you don't have a result called until 10, 10, 10 30. And, uh, and it all depends on when the uh, all depends on when the leaders make their speeches too. Uh, as a, To draw another example from the uh, federal election campaign, uh, everything seemed to be done and dusted by 9, 30, 10 o'clock, but that was because – Daylight saving time was on in the southern states, so uh, you had to you had to bear in mind that they were still doing the they were still doing their usual rig, rigmaroles as if it was ten thirty eleven. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's and we're lucky that the whole thing won't be on daylight saving time. But uh, yeah, we'll be starting our coverage from six o'clock. That's the second the polling booths close here in Queensland, and uh, we'll be out live on air through talkshow dot com. So make sure you check us out next Saturday evening. Uh, we'll be playing some uh, profiling some more artists. And doing some uh, some some great uh, music 
during the episode, but we'll also be uh, looking at coverage and hopefully we'll be able to uh, also uh, bring you uh, concession speeches, acceptance speeches, all that sort of stuff as live as we possibly can uh, through the various news outlets. Uh, should be quite an interesting little experiment for us. We haven't done an episode quite like this before. We've done live-only episodes before, but we've never done... Uh, a live-only episode where we've been trying to plug into real-time feeds from uh, a variety of news sources. And, and that. so it should be interesting to see all the drama, the heartache, the excitement, the the absurd polling day exploits. And if I get really bored next Saturday, I might even try and do some uh, some stuff at the polling booth during the day. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. Depends how bored I get next Saturday, uh, which is entirely possible considering it's uh, Harmony Day as well, 21st of March, Harmony Day. Uh, who will it be harmonious for, Anna Bly and the Labour Party or the Borg and the LNP Collective? We'll have to wait and see. It's six days to go. David, thank you very much for joining me here on this Sunday, March the 15th. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. And my name is Matthew Kapelke, signing off on the Sunday talk for today. We'll see you all next Saturday at 6pm for the live Queensland election episode. Goodbye, Australia. See you later, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.